As I announced last week, uh, yesterday we had a retreat, a leadership retreat at Black Rock for our church leadership, which was the church council and the deacons. And it was fruitful. My mind is, the dust is still settling in my mind. I felt stretched and uh, I don't know, things haven't quite settled yet, but it was, it was a good day and uh, there was a spirit of peace and unity in the room. Uh, so you can, for those of you who are praying and who have had us in your hearts, you can certainly praise the Lord for that. It was very fruitful in that regard. We uh, spent the day in an in a odd sort of way kind of giving uh, our church a report card, not, not ourselves, like, so how did so-and-so do? Not that. But like the church, how is the church doing in this area of the faith? How is the church doing in this area? Assessing the ministries of our church and the effectiveness of those ministries is kind of what some, some time was spent on. And we did it along the lines of the sermon series. So there was, there was you know, growing, discipling, or maturing, and spreading. You know, and on the topics of uh, something was interesting, and I, I continued to remark of it to myself as the, as the last night. When it got to things like maturing and growing, we had, we had a lot of language for that. We seemed to know what we were talking about. We, we knew the categories and... Um, we, you know, we've been dealing with good, healthy growth in this church for some time now. So that was, that was a place where we kind of, we were tweaking, uh, so to speak, or at least we had the concepts nailed down. And when we started talking about discipleship and maturing, man, we had terms for that too. Uh, because we disciple here. This is a discipling church. This is a church that I desire that you would go to Sunday school at 9 o'clock if you come to the 1030 service. And we work hard to have a Sunday school ready for you and waiting. And, and if that one would fill up, we would start another one. We, have the, we really have that desire in our heart. And with life groups, and with 12 stones, and with Bible studies, and with men's groups, and, and men's breakfast, and these kinds of things. They're, they're all over the place because we really believe that's an important part. But when we got to spreading, the conversation was much more conceptual. Like... Uh, almost as if we weren't as established and comfortable in the idea. Because we, we do. We do do certain things that are intentional spreading. Vacation Bible School is one of them. Our giving, our missional giving is another one. But when we started talking about the idea of uh, the concepts of you know, more active participation, they were much more conceptual. And there was a more humble spirit in the room on that topic. It was not so much details, it was concepts. And this is what came out of it. There was a, I, I say near unanimous because we didn't take a poll, but it felt like a unanimous feeling in the room that our church needs to do better in the area of intentional evangelism. So let me say that again. That, that we felt, overwhelmingly we felt like that the, the members of our community so you, all of us, that, that our church hasn't done the best job or hasn't been as intentional as it should in equipping you and instructing you and encouraging you and discipling, discipling you so that you would go outside of these walls and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with other people independent of this church. Like we felt like people will feel fine inviting people here, come to, come to church and... And maybe you'll find the Lord that way. But as far as 
the individual members feeling well-equipped to go somewhere and deliver the words of Christ, we said, you know, if it's happening, it's happening um, above and beyond what we've done, but we haven't taught it well enough. Hence today's sermon. So kind of threw out the old and in with the new last night. Um, it's Acts, so it preaches anyway. But if you would, I'd like to take the, the time this morning to spend a lot of time talking about what I think real evangelism is. And I want you to scrap in your mind all that's been stapled to the word evangelism. You know, because sometimes we just, we, we're predisposed to not like a term because it's been misused or overused or our childhood has things connected to it. But if you open to Acts 9, I hope this morning we can kind of devoutly pursue uh, the Lord's calling for us with regards to evangelism. And this is the first step, really. I mean, this message, by the way, is barely organized. So I mean, it was a late-nighter. Uh, so what I, hope you get, what, I, what I hope you get from the pitch of this message is, is, that, is the importance of evangelism. Um, there's no way that one message could kind of put all the pieces together or, or even one specific ministry. What we need is we need our congregation to agree in their hearts that this is our responsibility. And then I think the Spirit will minister and disciple us. But, but we need to kind of, sometimes you need to invite the Spirit to work. And maybe that's the goal of today, is just that we would invite the Spirit. So, so with that said, I'm going to read 19 to 22, 19b to 22. Acts chapter 9. This is what is written. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who called on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Now this 19b, even the fact that it's a 19b, you can tell that it's picking up on some earlier ideas that we talked about last Sunday, not the least of which was the conversion of Saul. So last Sunday Saul was converted, he, he was saved. And when I say that, what I mean is that Saul of Tarsus before last Sunday, at least in the narrative, that he did not acknowledge Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of his life. And now he does. Another way of saying this is that before, before the Damascus Road experience and all that happened there, that Saul was pursuing righteousness by some other means. That he knew he was going to go to his maker one day, but he thought by some, that, that he would carry his own righteousness to the Lord at some point. And that the Lord would look at all the things that Saul had done and he would reckon that as righteousness and after this experience, no more. But from this point on, when, when Saul goes to meet the Lord, the only words that Saul will have on his mouth is Jesus Christ. Every question, every question God asks us, we're just going to say Jesus Christ. But when did you, Jesus Christ? Right? That's the difference. Saul's now, he's now a Christian. He now understands that none of us are righteous and there's no way we can get to the kingdom based on our own works. We're dependent on the work of Jesus Christ. 
So he's saved. And then, if you look in, in 18, Ananias comes and he heals Saul. And then it says, immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. After taking some food, he regained his strength. I find that interesting. Saul hasn't eaten or drank for three days. He's healed. You'd think he'd go get a bowl of cereal or something before he got baptized. It's been a long time. He's healed and he's immediately baptized. It precedes his nourishment. The kind of haste that he has to get into the faith, to be part of the faith, to be obedient to the Lord. And then, it's after that, it's after his conversion, it's after his baptism, that we finally read in verse 20, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, Saul didn't go to a clinic or a conference or a retreat to figure out that this was what he was supposed to do. He's convicted, he's converted, he's baptized, and at once he enters into the synagogue and preaches that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I think there's three categories here of people. Maybe some of you might say theoretically there's two, but I, I think we actually work it out that there's three in life. The first category is these, the pre-converted Christian, or, or I guess the pre-converted person, the to-be Christian, the person who may be here this morning, who you don't have a, a strong level of confidence in your faith. Are you Christian? Are you not Christian? You're not quite sure. Maybe you know you're not Christian, but you feel like you're being drawn or you're interested. So far, things you've heard don't sound as hypocritical as you thought they were supposed to sound in church. You like the people. You're kind of pursuing more. Maybe it's a little more than that. Maybe you've been running from the Lord all this time, and you know you've been running. And just now, there's, you're slowing your pace. Like in the back of your mind, you're thinking, maybe it wouldn't be all that bad if I was caught. That's the first category. This is this saw before his conversion. And for you, if you don't know Christ and you're not clear of the gospel, I would say this is the gospel, that God loved, God loved us so much that he sent his one and only son to bear our wickedness and our unrighteousness, to pay the penalty of our sin so that you and me and everybody might be able to meet the Father in heaven and say, Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. So if you're here, if you're running, or if you're slowing your pace up, or if you're waiting for an excuse, or you just want to make sure you understand it, the basis of Christianity is faith in Jesus Christ. That's what you're called to this morning, to believe and commit your life to the work of Jesus Christ. That's category one. Here's category two. He gets baptized. Now, I kind of think category two, this baptism, is like the film between two ideas. It's not really a stage, except that, once again, I think in the church of our time, we have a pool of believers who want to live on, on, on one side of baptism. They want to have a faith, but they're not convicted or convinced that they need to be baptized. They don't know, they don't know what the significance is. And, and I want to suggest this morning that if you call yourself a believer and you're not being baptized... I want to try to, to offer why that might be the case. I think one of the reasons is it is very convenient to call yourself a Christian but not have to put the jersey on. You know, it's like you're on the team, but you just keep score. You're the scorekeeper. 
person. Right? You don't get a name on the back of your jersey or anything. It's just easier that way. There's this idea that I can, I can, in my own personal life, Jesus knows I know Jesus. I pray to Jesus and, and he hears me. All of that's going on. But, but the idea, sometimes the, the significance, baptism is symbolically significant even to you. And that if you do that, now you're really on board. Now you're really in this church, which means you've got to deal with all the good and all the bad. Right? You're cooperating and committing to be part of the solution. And you're confessing that you're part of the problem. You're not just consuming anymore. You're producing. And, and that is a step that is not always easy. And so I consider it a second category. Because you have a saving knowledge, but you haven't fully adapted yourself or committed yourself to the body of Christ. And I think baptism is a significant sign for that. I'm, every day I become increasingly more convinced that God is really smart in his institution of this ordinance here, of something to bring people, clearly to bring them from one side to the other, even though it doesn't save, a clear tool to bring them from one side to the other. So maybe there's some of you that are in category two. Here's category three. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Category one, on the way to Christ, being pursued by Christ, considering Christ. Category two, You're in the faith, but you haven't fully expressed your commitment through the sign and mark of baptism. Category three, you call yourself a Christian. You've been baptized at once in the synagogue, preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the three categories. We either don't know Jesus, or amidst the process of confessing him publicly, once we've done that, we are witnesses of Jesus Christ. We witness to him. We witness to Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't have other minions of witnesses in Hokesson or in this greater area. We are the witnesses of Jesus Christ. We and the other faithful churches around us, people just like ourselves, we are the witnesses of Jesus Christ. We are the mouthpiece that spreads the word. The word was with us and the word was us. The word comes out of our mouth and in, into the minds and hearts and souls of other people. We are the witnesses at once Saul gets up from his baptism, goes into the synagogue, and begins to preach that Jesus is the Son of God. Those are the three categories. There is not a category that I can find in Scripture of people who are saved, baptized, and do nothing with their testimony. There's no fourth category. No fourth category that's considered obedient, fully obedient. Now, this is the excuse that you may be using, because I've used it, that you may be saying, Pastor John, I'm no Paul. I know that. I'm no Paul either. That Paul, you know, Paul's Paul. Why does Paul do this? I'm not asking you to mimic Paul. Let's just say it that way. I'm not asking you to, to share that Jesus is the Son of God because Paul did it. I'm asking you to share that Jesus Christ is the Son of God because Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Let's not try to do what Paul did. Let's try to recognize who Paul recognizes. This is not a, let's follow the pattern of Paul, mindless of what's actually happening. I'm saying that that we do what Paul did because Jesus is the Son of God. 
We don't have to simply mimic Paul. Paul writes in the Corinthians, he says, there's some people out there who are walking around saying they're preaching the gospel of Paul. Some people are saying they're preaching the gospel of Cephas. And some people even are talking about the gospel of Apollos. He goes, can anybody just agree to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? Let's, it, it's for G- Jesus' work for us that's worth preaching. So we don't have to mimic Saul. So you don't have to be Paul. Because the Lord has worked in your own life. That's, that's the first thing. But still there's this idea that you're no Paul. Like, Paul is smart. And he had all this scripture. You don't have scripture. You can say, Pastor John, I don't know scripture like Saul did. Saul could do really cool stuff, like heal people. You can't do that. There's that feeling in us. If I could do the things that Saul could do, well, maybe I'd be like Saul. Well, I would say, I, I, I will say, I'm not asking you today to go into the synagogue and preach that Jesus is the Son of God. So if that was your calling, I'd say, well, maybe you need to be more like Saul. If you had today to go into the synagogue and preach that Jesus is the Son of God, I think you might have to have certain characteristics that Saul had. But that's not what I'm saying today. I don't want us to mimic Saul like so much that we have to follow him into the synagogue. What I want us to do is to try to take the principles of his life and apply them to our own. And so, and so what I've done... Very atypical of me. I've made four steps to obedient evangelism. In case you're a note taker. My, my wife would be proud of me here. She always wants me to give you stuff you can write down. If we want to mimic the obedient attitude of Paul, this is what I would say. Step one. Seek to identify the circles in your life in which you are very familiar with people. What's that familiar circle of people in your life? For Saul, it was the synagogue. He knows the synagogue. It's his stomping grounds. It's where he goes. It's where he grew up. It's where he was educated. It's his audience. It's where he has esteem. It's where people give him, well, listen. He recognizes not everybody can go to the synagogue. I can go to the synagogue. What's your circle? What's that circle of people you're with who don't know the Lord, but you, you know them. Right? You know their language. You know their life. You know their concerns. You know their hang-ups. You know their hang-ups about the church. You know the things to absolutely not start talking about. You know the things that they love to talk about. You know the ways to connect. You know where they go on holidays. You know all of these things. You know their children's names. What's that circle? That's your synagogue. Call that your synagogue. Go at once. Go to that synagogue. Because you know those people. You know them better than Saul would. At work. In your workplace, you know those people better than anybody knows those people. In the playgroup that you attend, do you actually think that Saul would want to show up at your playgroup? Speak Greek? Nobody would get it. It would be a failure. Saul would send you. You go to the playgroup. What's your circle? What, your classroom? Teacher's lounge? Lab? Do we still have people in a laboratory in this church? It used to be all laboratory people. Right? Laboratory? Some of you may say this. I don't have any circle of non-believers because I'm stuck at home with my kids. Your children are your circle. And those are souls. 
souls that God made to receive Jesus. That's your circle. You know them better than anybody. Go to them and speak about Christ. So that is step one. Identify your synagogue. What is it? Find it. Say, that's my mission field. Here's step two, and there's two parts to step two. You see, I'm getting all zany on you. Now, attempt to see that circle of people with the eyes of God. See them and love them as God sees them and loves them. And there's, there's two ways to do this. The first way is to remind yourself that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that he didn't just do it for you. He did it for that person across the table from you who doesn't know or love the Lord. That there's this, this intent of God to make the gospel fully available to all people. And the more and more you think about that and know that, the more and more you will find that he actually does want you to talk to this person who doesn't know Jesus. So that's the first way of knowing and loving them like God does. Here's the second way. We need to appreciate that God is going to call all human beings to account one day. Every single human that has ever walked the earth will be called to account before the Lord and they will be judged on one thing. Have they placed their faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ or not? Not what they've done, not how good they've been, not were they faithful in their own genre of faith. Have they placed their faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ or not? The person across from your table will one day have to go meet God and give answer to that. And there's two responses. If they have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, they spend eternity in heaven. If they have not, they spend eternity in hell. The eternity in hell is as real a concept in the faith, is as real a place, is as real an idea, is as real a reality as our hope for heaven. If I wanted to preach this scripture without hell and judgment, I would have to chop it up like some paper snowflake. It's as, it's as much a part of the story. All people are going to either go to heaven or they're going to go to hell. And the marker, the difference is those who claim to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now, if you're trying to know and love the people in your synagogue like God does, those are the two things. That God loved the world, that he sent his only son, because all people will come to judgment. That's step two. Here's step three. Observe what part of the gospel in their life is missing. Now, the first two, they're, they're like pure theology. This is technique, but I, I think it is biblical, it's, there's biblical principles behind it. Observe in the life of this person or these people in your, in your circle what part of the gospel is missing in their life. And what I mean is the whole gospel is always true all the time. But the doorway into the gospel is, can be very different for different people. So if you have a girlfriend who was raised in an abusive home and has no concept, can't even approach the concept of a loving father, well, that's a starting point. That's a starting point to say that God is a loving father. Let me show you all the ways that God loves you. Let me show you all the ways that God cares for you, the way he describes himself as a loving father. You can begin to bring the redemption. The good news of Jesus Christ is always good news. So find the place in their life where they need to hear that kind of good news. 
Maybe it's that. Maybe it's something totally different. If you're friends with a Vietnam vet or a Gulf War vet or some vet, they don't need to know that they're a sinner. They don't need to be told that. They have a whole lot of trash in their life. They know they're a sinner. They don't need us to start the good news of Jesus Christ saying, oh, all you've done is over there is just terrible. You know, I think a lot of times post-traumatic stress syndrome is the syndrome that soldiers have when they come home from war and they come home to a world that does not acknowledge sin because it's in them and they can't get it out. And when, when we meet these people, you know where I would start with them? I would start with grace and forgiveness because for them, the reason they can't understand God is they say, how could God love me? So I start. I'm not saying I forget the rest of the gospel. I'm saying my foot in the door is I find the place that they, that they need to hear the most. I find the best news for their life. And it's in the gospel. Jesus Christ is good news. So you find that and you lead in and you start a conversation. And it's a conversation. Step four. You trust that God is in charge. God is in charge. You use discernment. You use respect. You don't treat this occasion like it's the only moment in all of time that you have to cram the gospel down this person's throat because they're going to step out and get hit by a car. You use discernment and kindness and respect and trust that God is in charge, which means you speak in a loving way. You listen in a loving way. Just that the Lord's in charge. There was this occasion some years back. I, I, I found out a roommate when I was deployed didn't even know who Abraham was. We were watching Ben-Hur, of all things. And, uh, you know, I found out he didn't know this guy or that guy. And I was like, well, you don't know, you know Abraham, right? And he didn't know Abraham. And I'm like, what? I was like, what is your problem, man? So, so we started a Bible study. And it was just the two of us usually, and it was just him and I, and we just started going through the scriptures, right? Because he's my circle. He was my roommate. So I knew. I knew all the language. So on the way in, you know, we, we talked about all this. Well, I, I was as sensitive I could, as I could be, and I never got to pray the sinner's prayer with him. So I thought in the back of my heart, I said, I think this guy's a Christian. I think he's a Christian, but I never got to, to say the words or the, or the sinner's prayer or this kind of thing. And, and, and he moved away, and it's years later. About three months ago, I get an email from him. It says, just want you to know, I've gotten involved in a church. It's changed my life. Thank you. That's years. God's in charge. God's in charge. Our responsibility is to be obedient to what we're supposed to do right now. At once, we go preach. We preach in our circle. We preach in a sensitive way in a way that we know we'll meet them because we know these people. And we trust that God's in charge and he'll take care of the rest. That's the four steps. And if you do those four steps, this is what will happen. 23. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. You see that? If you follow my four steps, you'll be dead in a week. 
After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch at the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. Let's, let's see what he does in Jerusalem. Let's see if Paul is consistent here. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey, had seen the Lord, and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. You see it? It's because he's in the third category. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. You've got to remember that God's in charge. So if, if, if it seems like your gospel witness was a failure, if it seems like it bore no fruit at all, if it seems like it didn't do any good, you don't know what it did. You just don't know. If they tried to kill you, who knows? It's, it's our job to be obedient. It's God's job to do the work here. And besides, something happened. You may, you may have missed it, but something actually happened. Despite the two murderous attempts, did you see what happened by the end of the story? It happens between verse 30 and verse 31. When the brothers learned of this, the plot to kill him, they took him down to Caesarea and they sent him off to Tarsus. Now look at this. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened. It was encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers because they lived in the fear of the Lord. Now, how did that happen? Why is that even here? The ESV begins 31 with so. Like, so as a result. So the, the, the idea is... The idea is, is that somehow the sending away of Saul of Tarsus to get him out of the country, get him to Caesarea and get him home, get him, get him out of here to save his life, somehow that is connected to the peace in the church. And it's just not the church in Jerusalem. It's the entire church. Jerusalem, Galilee, Samaria. That's as far as the church has gone right now. So somehow all of what Paul's done here has resulted in peace. Otherwise, the verse really doesn't make any sense. So how does, how, does, how does Saul's witness, how does all this matter? How does it generate peace? Well, I think this is kind of what happened. You know, last week we talked about Saul being described as a dragon. The fact that he breathed out threats and he ravaged the church and his scales fell off his eyes. Well, I think in a way... The conversion of Saul is like the head of the dragon being chopped off. That the, the massive strategy of the enemy, their key player, the quarterback of the enemy, was Saul of Tarsus. And that, it's worse than the head getting chopped off. It's the head of the dragon devouring itself. It's like the dragon's eating his own flesh. To have Saul of Tarsus, their key man, pointing a finger back at the synagogue baffling it with the scriptures. That's what it says, baffled it. It's busting on him is what he's doing. It's busting. 
if you were there, it'd be like, ooh, snap. Saul is snapping. He's, there's snapping happening. That's what's going on here. Saul and his conversion has become the enemy's worst nightmare. He's going around, and all the so-called teachers of the law, Saul is trouncing on them. He's stomping on them with Scripture. They throw out a verse, he throws back 30 verses from memory. He was best among his peers. They talk about righteousness. He talks about abounding righteousness of his own life. It's a circle. He knows his circle. He's crushing them theologically. He's so dangerous. He's so damaging. They got to kill him. There's nothing they can do. They got to kill this guy and get him out quick. And so what do they do? He smuggles out. And to me, the time of peace comes because the enemy is in absolute disarray. Who's, what's going on? It would felt like they just got hit by a truck. What just happened to us? What's the strategy? Who's on first? What's going on? That's where this time of peace is coming from, so that all of this sharing the gospel of Saul, which seems in vain at the time, right? he shares, they try to kill him, so he scatters. It's funny, it's Saul is scattering right after his conversion. He goes somewhere else, shares, they try to kill him, he scatters. You look at Saul and you go, this is fruitless sharing of the gospel. This evangelism has no effect except for the simple effect that the entire church of Jesus Christ experiences peace through his work. You just don't know. You don't know how the words of Christ are landing on someone else. All scripture is God-breathed. All scripture. The word of Jesus converts. It's got power. It is real power. It's not you. It's grace of God that he's using us. You just don't know what's happening. And I I see this. I see this. This verse 31. This verse 31, I, I, I think I read it or think of it every single day right now. This is Pastor Terry and I. This is probably how we entered into this entire sermon series in a way is is just meditating on the idea that our church feels right now like it's in a time of peace. It just feels that way. It feels good to be alive in this church. And I think sometimes we need to remember that, that, that peace is a gift from God. It isn't something we can forge. It isn't something we can carve out of this life. It's something that's given to, by God and it's taken by God. It's something that we can only trust to have later on in life. The never-ending peace in Scripture happens later. So the fact that God's given this church peace, this time of peace, makes me feel, just makes me so committed to that we ought to do something with it. And I think that starts, I think that starts with the Christians of this church, all those in the third category, bolstering themselves in the spirit of Jesus Christ, to speak of his work. Not because Paul did it, but because what God did for us. In your circle, in your circle, in your synagogue, in the way that you know how to, to the people when you see an opportunity, have a word for them. And the church will continue to grow and be strengthened in the fear of the Lord. Amen.